So now we're entering a new section, and this is the section of Josiah. Now, Josiah's already been mentioned before. Does anybody remember? Jeroboam was the first king of the divided kingdom right after Solomon. This was like 200 years ago. Jeroboam was the first king of the divided kingdom 200 years ago, and he built the two golden calves, one in Bethel, one in Dan, and the man of God came out of the wilderness and came up to the altar in Bethel and said, God is going to condemn you. Thus saith Yahweh, a day will come when Josiah, a descendant of David, will destroy this religion and burn all the bones and the bodies of all the priests and the prophets of this false religion. And the sign is that this altar will split open and the ashes will pour out on the ground. Jeroboam immediately stuck his hand out and said, seize him and kill him. And God made his arm petrify and get stuck like that. And instantaneously, the altar split open and the ashes poured out. He cried for forgiveness and God healed his arm, but God did not undo the prophecy. Then this golden calf has been going for about 200 years. And now about 200 years later, Josiah comes into the picture. This is the long-awaited, practically forgotten prophecy that the man of God way, 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 way back in the day spoke of. But Josiah is not a believer. Josiah does not worship Yahweh exclusively. So this is a story. Chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. and reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Jedidiah, daughter of Adadiah, from Bazkath. He did what Yahweh approved and followed in his ancestor David's footsteps, and he did not deviate to the right or the left. Now, that's the overall evaluation of his life, but he didn't start off that way. He didn't start off that way. In the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, the king sent the scribe Shaphan, son of Azaliah, son of Meshalam, to Yahweh's temple with these orders. Go to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him melt down the silver that has been brought by the people to Yahweh's temple and has been collected by the guards at the door. Have them handed over to the construction foreman and assigned to the Yahweh's temple. They, in turn, should pay the temple workers to repair it, including craftsmen, builders, and masons, should buy wood and chiseled stone for the repair work. Do not audit the foreman who disabuse, who disabuse the silver, for they are honest, or dispersed, sorry. There's a lot of similarities to Joash. Joash was right before Hezekiah. And Joash was that boy king who became, was Athaliah. His aunt was trying to kill him. He's hidden away into the temple for six years. In the seventh year, he became king. And one of the things he did, he commanded the repair of the temple. Remember, he probably didn't notice that the temple wasn't being repaired very well because years go by and he finally notices nothing has happened. And it turns out that priests have been stealing money. So he eventually gave the money over to the foreman and said they're in charge of the money. Josiah is very similar to that. He has come along in his reign. He has commanded the restoration of the temple. Now, it does not say anything about him removing the idols that Manasseh put there. It doesn't say anything about why he's restoring the temple. 
He could just be doing it as a historical landmark. He could be doing it because he's worshiping Yahweh and the other gods in addition to Yahweh. And so he gives the money to the foreman and says, they're trustworthy, the priests are not. (laughs) I want the temple rebuilt. So, so far, nothing stands out really unique or awesome about him, and he's very similar to Joash. Verse 8, Hilkiah, the high priest, informed Shaphan, the scribe, I found the law scroll in Yahweh's temple. Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan and to read it. And Shaphan, the scribe, went to the king and reported to your servants, melted down the silver in the temple, and handed it over to the construction foreman as assigned to Yahweh's temple. Then Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest has given me a scroll. And Shaphan read it out loud before the king. Now, most likely, the law scroll is referring to at least Deuteronomy and maybe even the entire Torah. And this is huge because he says, I found the book of Deuteronomy, which means nobody has read at least the book of Deuteronomy, if not the entire Torah, for several generations. Manasseh obviously didn't care. Amon obviously didn't, or Ahaz didn't obviously care. So the law of God has literally been lost. Literally been lost. Now, the law, now here's, remember, the word of God has not been destroyed. It has not been undone because it was still there all along in some pottery or some hidden room or forgotten basement storage room in the temple somewhere. But it was lost. And so they're rebuilding it, and they found it. And they bring it to the king, and they read it to him in one sitting. This is the book of Deuteronomy. If it's the entire Torah, then we're talking about several hours here of him listening to this. Verse 12, the king ordered Hilkiah the priest. Sorry, verse 11. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Remember, he has never heard the law before. The king ordered Hilkiah the priest, Halakam, son of Shaphan, Akabor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, the king's servant, go seek an oracle from Yahweh for me and the people for all of Judah. Find out about the words of the scroll that has been discovered, for Yahweh's fury has been ignited against us, because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of the scroll by doing all that is instructed us to do. Now this is amazing. Josiah knows very little about the law. Deuteronomy chapter 17 says that every king is required to copy the law in his own handwriting and reading on a daily basis. He's never done that. He never even knew that he was supposed to do that. And now he's having Deuteronomy read to him, and I wonder what he's thinking as he's listening to Deuteronomy 17. And not only that, then you get into Deuteronomy 27, and God says, if you act just like the Canaanites did, I will do to you what I did to the Canaanites. And then in 28, God goes to the curses and says, and I will take you in exile eventually. And in 30 is the restoration covenant where God promises that despite all these judgments, God will restore Israel one day. So Josiah is listening to all this in one sitting, in one reading, and the whole theme of Deuteronomy is real obedience is a loving relationship with God, not because you want a reward or because you're afraid of punishment. And he's immediately convicted. He's immediately convicted. 
And he says, we have been sinning. This says a lot about where he is with Yahweh because he doesn't even know that he's been sinning, which means he most likely does not know who Yahweh is, not on an intimate, personal level. He knows Yahweh as a name, as a God, but not relationally because he doesn't even know they've been sinning. He says, oh my gosh, we've been sinning. We have judgment coming. The book of Deuteronomy is about ready to be fulfilled in our own lifetime. Go find out from a prophet what we're supposed to do. This is an amazing, amazing repentance and response. He didn't even have to listen to a debate or have somebody like nagging with the gospel for years upon years. He just is like, just convicted. Verse 14. So Hilkiah, the priest, Hakayam, Akorba, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Holdah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalama, son of Ikva, the son of Harhas, the supervisor of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the Mishnah district. So they go to the prophetess, a female prophet by the name of Holdah. They stated their business, and she said to them, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Say this to the man who sent you to me. This is what Yahweh says. I'm about to bring disaster on this place and its residence, the details of which are recorded in the scroll which the king of Judah has read. This will happen because they have abandoned me and offer sacrifices to other gods. Angering me will ignite against angering me with all the idols they have made. My anger will ignite against the palace, against this place, and will not be extinguished. So there's nothing you can do to extinguish my judgment. Say this to the king of Judah, who sent you to seek an oracle from Yahweh. This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says concerning the words that you have heard. You displayed a sensitive spirit and humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard how I intended to make this place and its residence into an appalling example of an accursed people. You tore your clothes and wept before me, and I have heard you, says Yahweh. Therefore, I will allow you to die and be buried in peace. You will not have to witness all the disaster I will bring on this place. Then he reported back to the king. So Holda's message is, there's nothing, there's nothing you can do. It's, you've passed the point of no return. Nothing can extinguish my anger. Judgment and exile is coming, period. But it's not going to happen in your lifetime. Because you were faithful. You will delay it another generation. And this says something about the mercy of God. That he says, look, there's nothing you can do to extinguish my anger. Yet at the same time, because someone does repent and show a heart that is for Yahweh, God says, but I will delay my punishment. I will spare this generation from this. Remember, when Hezekiah heard that, he was like, well, at least it won't happen to me. The end. But Josiah is not content to stop there. In this sense, he goes way beyond Hezekiah. Chapter 23, verse 1. The king summoned all the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to Yahweh's temple, accompanied by all the people of Judah and all the residents of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets. And all the people were there from the youngest to the oldest. He read aloud all the words of the scroll of the covenant that had been discovered in Yahweh's temple. He could have easily said, 
good for me. I'm not going to die in this horrible exile. I'm not going to die in this horrible judgment. I repented. I'm going to have blessings now. And there's nothing I can do to stop the exile or the judgment in any kind of way. So I'll just keep living the life that I've been living and I'll just stay committed to Yahweh. But he's not content. He gathers all the people of Jerusalem together. He gathers all, probably most likely the all means any kind of person has any power of authority that has to listen to him and obey him. And then an open invitation goes out to the common citizens of the city. So it probably does not mean that literally every person was there, but every person who would be in trouble if they weren't there and an open invitation to everybody. So thousands of people are gathered and they all stand and they hear Deuteronomy read to them. He has Deuteronomy read to the entire city of Jerusalem. And notice it says, All the people, there from the youngest to the oldest, he read aloud the words of the scroll of the covenant that had been discovered by Yahweh's temple. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant before Yahweh, agreeing to follow the Yahweh and to obey the commandments and the laws and the rules and all his heart and being by carrying out the terms of his covenant recorded on the scroll and all the people agreed to keep the covenant. This phrase of him standing by the temple pillars is the exact phrase used of Joash. But he's going over and beyond Joash and knows that he is agreeing to keep the commandments. And it says, with all of his heart. That's the exact phrase of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall worship him and love him with all your heart, life, and muchness. And so what God is communicating here, and then all the people agree. These are the people who have been worshiping idols. These are the people who have been sacrificing their own children. And many of them are now turning back to Yahweh in a revival. And they're getting their life right. Verse 4, The king ordered Hilkiah the high priest and the high-ranking priests and the guards to bring out Yahweh's temple, all the items that were used in the worship of Baal, Asherah, and all the stars of the, all the, stars of the sky. The king burned them outside of Jerusalem and the terraces of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Now that lets you know that he was not a believer to begin with. Because there's no way a believer who had that much power, absolute power, would have allowed those idols to be in the temple. And now that he's been convicted, he is cleaning house now. And basically here's what makes Josiah so amazing. He's not content to just say, I turn to God. And I'm good. But there's nothing we can do to stop the exile. So we might as well just keep going the way that we are. Instead, he is determined to get as many people into the same faith and same obedience to Yahweh as he has. He's saying, I know that basically, ultimately, Judah is going to go into exile. We're going to be punished. But I want as many people to know this Yahweh and to fall in with all of his heart in a loving relationship that I possibly can do in my own lifetime. This is amazing. If we heard that God was going to destroy America off the face of the earth in the next couple of months or a couple of years, would our response just to like hunker down and, and finish our bucket list or, and whatever, or would we say, I need to get as many people in the faith of God as possible? Hezekiah said, at least it won't happen to me. Josiah says, but I want people to know this Yahweh. 
Josiah is not, I'm not content with just me knowing Yahweh. And I know there's nothing we can stop to do exile, but I don't care. Because this isn't about me getting a reward. This is not about me escaping a judgment. This is about me wanting the people to know Yahweh. And that's incredible. That means in one sitting of Deuteronomy, he got the point. He got the point of Deuteronomy. And he fell in love with this amazing, unique Yahweh. And he got that it was about a loving relationship and not for a reward or escaping judgment. And he wants everybody else to experience this. So he immediately goes in the temple and out of love to God, nothing he does is going to stop the judgment. He can keep the idols there. Nothing would change. But a love for Yahweh, he cleanses the temple. I have a love for it. This, this isn't going to stop the exile from coming. This isn't going to stop the judgment. This isn't going to stop Yahweh's anger. He does it because he loves Yahweh. Period. There's no reward. There's no benefit except for the relationship with God. And he does it. He cleanses the temple. He eliminated the pagan priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed as their officers in the high places of the cities of Judah and the area around Jerusalem. They offered sacrifices to Baal and the sun god and the moon god and the constellations and all the stars in the sky. He removed the Asherah pole from Yahweh's temple. He took it outside Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley, where he burned it. He smashed it to dust. He threw it to the dust to the public graveyard. He tore down the quarters of the male and cultic prostitutes of Yahweh's temple, where women were weaving shrines, were weaving shrines for Asherah. So the temple had actually become a place of temple prostitution for these pagan gods as well. He brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and ruined the high places where the priests had offered sacrifices from Geba to Beersheba. He tore down the high places of the goat idols situated at the entrance of the gate of Joshua and the city official on the left side of the city gate. Now the priests of the high places did not go unto the altar of Yahweh Jerusalem, but they did eat unleavened cakes among their fellow priests. The king ruined Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so that no one could pass a son or daughter through the fire to Moloch. He removed from the entrance of Yahweh's temple the statues of horses the kings of Judah had placed there in honor of the sun god. And they were kept near the room of Nathan, Melech, the eunuch, which was situated among the courtyards. He burned up the chariots devoted to the sun god, and the king tore down the altars of the kings of Judah set up on the roof of Ahaz's upper room as well as the altars Manasseh had set up in the two courtyards of the Yahweh's temple. He crushed them up through the dust in the Kidron Valley. The king ruined the high places east of the Jerusalem, south of Mount of Destruction. The king of Solomon, the king had built uh, the, for the detestable Sidonian gods, Astarte and detestable Moabite god, Kamosh, and the horrible Ammonite god, Milcom. He smashed the sacred pillars of bits, cut down the Asher pole, and filled the shrines with human bones." He is cleaning house everywhere. There's not a place left untouched. Now, this is what makes it amazing. When Hezekiah tore down all the high places, he tore down all the high places. When Josiah tore down all the high places, he ruined them. Now, what does that mean? He defiled them. That's a much better word. He defiled the high places. He took the priests 
and the false prophets, which Deuteronomy commanded that any false prophet and false priest in Israel were to be executed, he took them and he burned their bodies and their bones and then took their ashes and threw them on the sacred places. And every single religion in the entire world, if you take dead bodies and ashes that have been cremated and throw them on sacred spots, they become defiled. And you can never, ever make that spot a sacred spot again unless somebody forgets. But that would take multiple generations for that memory to disappear. So he's basically saying, Hezekiah, my great-grandfather, he tore down the high places but his son Manasseh rebuilt them. I'm going to tear down the high places, but I'm going to make sure nobody can rebuild them. Nobody can rebuild them. If my revival is undone in the next generations, it will not lead to a rebuilding of these idols because they can't. They cannot do this. The gods will not allow it. They will not accept the sacrifices. So he ruins them. He even ruins the valley. Now, the, the, the Ben-Hinnom Valley, the temple sat up on top of a temple mount. And literally in the valley next to it was the Ben-Hinnom Valley, and they would sacrifice their children to the gods in that valley. They would literally go up into the temple, and they would worship Yahweh, and then they would go down into the valley where their gods were set up and erected, and they would sacrifice their children right there with the temple in sight. And they did not even understand why that was wrong. He's throwing ashes and he, well, he's doing things to ruin this valley as well. So they can't do it again. Verse 15. He also tore down the altar in Bethel at the high place made by Jeroboam, son of, Beth, of Nabat, who encouraged Israel to sin. He burned all the combustible items on the high place and crushed them to dust, including the Asher pole. Now, where is Bethel? Where's Bethel? Samaria. Does Josiah control Samaria? No. Who controls them? The Syrians. And before them, it was the king of Israel. He has no jurisdiction in Samaria whatsoever. Yet Josiah doesn't care. He knows that that land does belong to God. He doesn't think like, oh, but that belongs to the Syrians. That's not my problem. There's no Israelites who live there anymore. That's not my problem. That land doesn't belong to us anymore. What he thinks is that's the land that God promised to us. That's the land of God. And that land is just as defiled by these idols as my land was. And I don't care about whose jurisdiction this is. That's the promised land of Yahweh. And I'm going to go there and I'm going to clean house up there as well. And he goes right up in the north with all of his soldiers, and he begins to cleanse all of the promised land. And the first place he goes is the Bethel. And he tears it down. We don't even know if he even knows about the prophecy. There's nothing that even hints that he knows the prophecy. He says, I'm going to do what the prophecy says. So he tore down the, the, Bethel, the altar of Bethel. When Josiah turned around, he saw the tombs there on the hill, and he ordered the bones from the tombs to be brought. He burned them on the altar and defiled it. And this fulfilled Yahweh's announcement made by the prophet while Jeroboam stood by the altar during a festival. King Josiah turned and saw the grave of the prophet who foretold this. He asked what this grave marker is that I see. 
The men from the city replied, It's the grave of the prophet who came from Judah and foretold these very things they have done to the altar of Bethel. The king said, Leave it alone, so no one must touch its bones. And they left his bones undisturbed, as well as the bones of the Israelite prophet who buried him. Now remember the man of God disobeyed God by actually going with somebody and eating a meal with them. God said, don't go back the way you return and don't eat a meal with anybody until you return home. This false prophet from Bethel comes out and says, hey, I'm a prophet of God too. And God said, you're supposed to eat with me. And the man of God made the mistake of not asking for a sign. So he chose to eat with him. And God prophesied and said, you're going to die. Because all prophets die when they disobey God. But he would not be allowed to be buried with his ancestors, but he would still be buried. Which means this is not an eternal judgment. It was just a physical punishment for his death, for, for his disobedience. So the false prophet, ensuring that he doesn't want his bones to defile, says, bury that man of God with my bones when I die, so that my bones don't get burned according to the prophecy of the man of God. So that's what they're talking now. Josiah looks over, and he sees his, this tomb. He says, who is that? And he says, well, that's the man of God who prophesied this. We don't know how much Josiah knows. Is he just learning about the prophecy now? Does he only know a little bit about it? But he obviously doesn't know all the details, or he never would have asked whose gravestone is that. So then they left it untouched, which fulfills the word of God as well, but it also left the other man's bones untouched too. Now what does that mean? Don't know. It could possibly mean that Israel is full of the godly and the ungodly, and maybe there will be ungodly people who will be spared in the exile along with the godly because God is merciful. But I would not read into this in some kind of eternal judgment in any kind of way that he's spared from that because they have no concept of an eternal judgment yet at this point in Israelite history. Verse 21, The king ordered all the people, observe the Passover of Yahweh your God as prescribed in the scroll of the covenant. He issued this edict because of the Passover, like because a Passover like this had not been observed since the days of the judges. It was neglected for the entire period of the kings of Israel, Judah. But in the eighteenth year of King of King Josiah's reign, such a Passover of Yahweh was observed in Jerusalem. The last time we see a Passover being observed is in Joshua. We're never now. The author goes on and tells you there were Passovers observed in the time of the judges. But it tells you that there was never really truly a Passover observed in the way that God wouldn't observe all throughout the monarchy. Which means not even David did the Passover right. Now remember, David didn't even bring in the Ark of the Covenant right. He just brought it in on a party float and celebrated, not even knowing that it's supposed to be carried by priests with sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. And God killed Uzziah as a result of that. And so David had to go to the law and figure out how to do it right. See, even though David had the law in his hands, and he supposedly copied it, he didn't actually pay close enough attention to the law to even do the Ark of the Covenant right the first time. Now we're being told that David didn't even do the Passover right the entire life of David, and no king since him. So this is the first time in the entire monarchy starting in the early 900s, going all the way now up past 722 B.C., that a Passover has been done right. And remember, the Passover remembers God saving Israel from their bondage in Egypt 
and into a new life with Yahweh. The Passover meal is the communion or the Lord's Supper that we do. It is the meal that celebrates the exodus, which is the equivalent of the cross for us. And no king has ever done it right. And maybe not even, they haven't even done it. But right now it blatantly at least says they didn't do it right. That is huge. Nobody's been remembering God's salvation of his people in the right way throughout the entire monarchy until Josiah. Josiah is going over and beyond everybody. Over and beyond everybody. And remember, he doesn't have to. There's no reward that he's going to get for this. The judgment is not going to be taken away from Judah for doing this. He's doing this because he loves Yahweh. And he wants the land and the people to be free from the corruption, the evil of the pagan gods. That's the only motivation he has. That's his reward, is the relationship. Not the materialistic gain, not the free from being suffering, not that, well, at least I'm not going to suffer, and not the escaping the judgment. Verse 24, Josiah also got rid of all the ritual pits used in conjuring up spirits, the magicians, personal idols, disgusting images, and all the detestable idols that had appeared in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. And this way he carried out the terms of the law recorded in the scroll of Hilkiah, the priest had discovered in the Yahweh's temple. No king before or after repented before Yahweh as he did with his whole heart, soul, and being in accordance with the law of Moses. Now we're told that there was no one who was righteous like Hezekiah before him or after him. But it was Josiah, we're told that nobody gave over their heart in total and absolute complete repentance to God like Josiah has. And maybe the only reason that Josiah is not considered a greater king than Hezekiah is because Josiah didn't start off that way. But the narrator makes it very clear that there's never, ever been a king who's repented like him and has given his entire heart over to God in repentance when he was convicted of his sins. Talk about repentance. Repentance is when you turn away from your sins and you destroy or make it, you destroy the thing that has led you into sin or make it impossible for you to go back to that sin or extremely difficult. And he has done that. He has not only destroyed idols, but he has defiled them. This is an incredible act of repentance. Yet he was not perfect. Remember, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet Yahweh's great anger against Judah did not subside. He was still infuriated by all the things that Manasseh had done. Yahweh announced, I will also spurn Judah just as they spurned Israel. I reject the city that I chose, both Jerusalem and the temple, about which I said, I will live there. So basically God says, this is not undoing the judgment. The rest of the events of Josiah's reign and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Judah. During Josiah's reign, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, marched toward the Euphrates River to help the king of Assyria. And King Josiah marched out to fight him, but Necho killed him in the Megiddo. And when he saw him, his servants transported his dead body from Megiddo and the chariot and brought it to Jerusalem, where they buried him in his tomb. The people of the land took Josiah's son Jehoiaz, poured oil on his head, and made him king 
in his father's place. He dies a violent death. And normally that means God has judged you for your sins. But there's nothing here or in Chronicles that tells us what Josiah's sins are. One or two things could be said here. He has sinned in some kind of way and God's judging him because that's been the pattern so far. Or God never really said what his sin was. So is that a a correct assumption we can make? There's a certain point where things change in Israel, where people dying young is no longer a judgment. We are now in a time period where if people get sick and horrible diseases, or if people die young, that is not a judgment from God. That doesn't mean you've sinned. And it's not even true of every individual. It's usually only true of kings and prophets. Kings and prophets are only ones who've been promised long life as a result of obedience. They're an exception. So it could be here that it's not that he's sinned in any kind of way. It could just be that God has so walked away from Israel that this is just the way it's going to be with everybody from now on. That God is beginning to step away, is beginning to take his protection away, and the promises of Deuteronomy no longer apply on a national level. And therefore, there's nothing that he did that led to a, a death, a violent death, like kings in the past. But the fact that this death comes after the fact that God said, but you've passed the point of return, means that God is no longer protecting Judah. And now even really godly kings are going to suffer and experience horrible things because God is no longer with his people. 